Why don't you take your Bible and go ahead and turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. That's where we're going to be this morning in our study through Paul's letter to one of the churches that he founded during his ministry. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We're also going to be back in some familiar territory. For those of you who have been part of this series so far, one of the things we've seen Paul do over and over just in the first uh, few paragraphs of this letter is try to defend himself against people who didn't take him seriously. People who thought that he was a fraud. People who were constantly evaluating him, wanting to test and see if he were the genuine article or if they might do better for themselves by trusting and following somebody else. Paul's still pushing back against these same people in chapter 3 where we're going to be this morning. They want to prove that he's not the real deal. They want to prove that he's some sort of poser. Or they want him to prove that he is the real deal. That he's not some sort of poser. And Paul's response raises a question that's really important for each of us. Even though we're not in Corinth, we're not listening to him directly in the same way that they were, we may not have the same level of of stake in testing him to see if he's for real. Because Paul's a founder of Christianity, when he's defending himself, he's defending Christianity. He's defending what became the biblical form of this religion that our church is here to represent and to try to to, to spread. So by defending himself, he's defending what we claim to hold. He's defending or offering a way to evaluate what you might be considering this morning. If you're here as someone who's not yet a follower of Jesus, we're so glad that you're here. Every week we pray that you'll come. And what you have is an opportunity this morning, as we look at this part of this letter, what you have is an opportunity to hear from a founder of Christianity what he thinks you should be paying attention to if you want to know if Christianity is for real. If you want to know if it's true. If you want to know whether if you were to trust your life to it, you won't be let down by it or disappointed. Then you need to look in the right place. And Paul's job this morning is to point our eyes to the right place. Where does true Christianity show up? How can you tell what it is? Where does it show up? And is it even true? Those are the questions we want to be getting at this morning. And we're going to follow Paul to do it. I want to begin by reading his opening, uh, his opening to chapter 3, the first 11 verses. And I'm going to ask you now to please stand with me in honor of God's word while I read. I'm going to begin with verse 1 and read all the way to verse 11. This is the word of the Lord. Paul says, Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts, to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we're sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who's made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory 
that the Israelites couldn't gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. This is God's word. You can be seated. Here's what I want to do this morning. I want to walk through what Paul has to say. First, try to see why he's saying what he's saying. Why what he says would have been a good way to answer questions that had been asked of him. That's the first two steps I want to take this morning. I want to follow Paul to see the proof of true Christianity and then to, to, to look at the power of true Christianity. That's, that's his concern. And then I want to take two more steps that will help us to drive into our own experience, into our own hearts, and into our own you know, personal evaluation of Christianity. The message that Paul communicates in these verses We'll talk about the challenge of true Christianity to each one of us. And with that challenge, the hope of true Christianity for anyone who will turn to it. That's the path I want us to follow this morning. I want to begin with Paul and the proof that he offers of true Christianity. When I say proof, I don't want you to think like a a logical proof. You know, some sort of philosophical syllogism that ends in conclusive and, and definitive proof. Think of it more that... Think of it more uh, of what you can look for in experience in the world that you observe to see that there's really power in something, to see that something really is what it's claimed to be. In these first several verses, first six verses that we read, Paul's telling you what to look for if we want to know that he's legit. So like I said before, as, as founder of Christianity, he's also telling you what to look for if you want to know that Christianity is true and trustworthy. If you want to know that you've got not some cheap copy or some sort of flashy fool's gold, but the real thing. And in verse 2, Paul says, if you want to know that I'm legit, then you need to look not at me, but at yourselves. Did you see that? You yourselves, he says, are are, are our letter of recommendation. You're the proof, he's saying that there's power in my ministry. Verse 3 expands on the same idea. You show, he says, that you're a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, and not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. You're a letter written by Jesus. You're a letter only Jesus could write. A letter written by the power of His Spirit on your heart. What's Paul saying? Where's he in this image? He's not even the one writing the letter, is he? He's the mailman. You're our letter of recommendation, but as if he just, he's compelled to change the image a little bit. It's actually a letter by Jesus. He's the one who wrote it. It's just delivered by us. We're a means to an end. We're an instrument that he uses to get the message out. And Paul can't be more than a mailman Because Paul doesn't have the power to change hearts. And that's where this letter is written. We need to move a little further into the text to see what he's talking about here. Verses 4 to 6. Same point. gets reinforced again by Paul. Look at verse 5. We're not sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us. 
Paul's, Paul's still talking about this same question. How do we know you're for real? Paul says, not by anything that's true about me. Let me go ahead and throw up my hands and say, don't look here. Don't look at me. I am not the proof that I'm legit. Anything that matters to me is something that I'm not sufficient for. Everything I'm giving my life to depends on a power that's not mine. Our sufficiency, he says, is from God, who's made us sufficient to be ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. Any sufficiency that you could evaluate in Paul must be a sufficiency that belongs to God. Okay, so what's he talking about? That's a lot of details here. You're going to need to know something about the background to what Paul's saying, and then I want to try to, to press in a little bit on what he's saying with an image that I think will help us connect with it. So, so to make any sense of what he's saying in this talk of, of letters written by Jesus, letters written not with ink but the Spirit, letters written not on stone but on fleshy hearts, to make any sense of that, you need to know that Paul is talking about a particular part of the Old Testament where one of the most important promises that sets the stage for, Je- stage for Jesus uses language exactly like this. Flip over, if you will, in your Bible to the Old Testament. Look for, look for the book of Jeremiah. One of the most important prophecies about what God would do for his people. How he chose to respond to his people being unfaithful to him. It comes in Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah 31, beginning in verse 31 and going to verse 34, Jeremiah describes what he calls a new covenant using exactly the same language that Paul just used here, the language we just read in verses 1 to 6. And I want to read this for you. I want you to notice how familiar it sounds based on what Paul's saying. And then I'm going to come back over it again, use an image that I think will help us to to see what he means and, and try to get the point for ourselves. Here's what Jeremiah said. I think Paul's basically quoting from him here. Jeremiah said, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Same new covenant that Paul's talking about in verse 6 of chapter 3. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers, Jeremiah says, on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. Does that sound familiar? And I will be their God. And they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I'll forgive their iniquity. And I'll remember their sin no more. Did you notice this language? This language of new covenant? This language of the Spirit? This language of of things written on hearts, not on tablets of stone. Paul's basically quoting from that. And what he's saying is that the ministry that matters to me is a ministry that won't be possible apart from a power that belongs only to God himself. This is a ministry that aims at the transformation of people's hearts. Remember what these people are looking for. They want bling. They want to be impressed. They want Paul to, use, to, to sort of play into the same standards they've always used for judging what people they would listen to or what people they would follow. He is the focal point for them. They're paying attention to him and looking for him to impress them with the right package of skills. 
But Paul's saying, no, no. The only thing that matters to me is a covenant that won't work unless it is driven by a power I could never have. I'm just exhibit A for God's power. Only God can make us competent to be ministers of this new covenant. Do you see how he's saying that? He has made us sufficient because it's his covenant depends on his spirit and his spirit working change in hearts. What Paul wants, the ministry he's about, is lives that are transformed from the inside out by a power that can never come from them. That's what the promise of the new covenant had pointed to. Lives transformed from the inside out. You don't have to say anymore, know the Lord with a finger shake. You should know the Lord. No, they will know because they will have been transformed. No more will there just be laws given, standards set, people called on to obey, but given no help to do so. Now they'll obey because they want to, because inside of them, in their heart, in the center of their personhood, the center from which they decide what to do, from which they feel and think, the center that controls everything about them, it's going to be renovated so that they'll obey because they want to, because obedience smells sweet to them, because it's what they can't not do. So if you want to evaluate Paul's ministry, you've got to stop looking at Paul's skills. Because the things that he wants to do could never be accomplished by any skill set that any person comes with. How do you... Let me, let, me, let me tease this out a little bit with an example. Maybe it'll help, help it to come home a little bit more. How do you legitimize... How do you tell that someone is legit as a musician? Or as a doctor? Or as a chef? Or as a baseball player? Well, there isn't one set of standards you could apply to all those people. You tell if they're legit based on what it is they're trying to do. They need competencies that fit with their goals. So for a musician, you might look for the emotional quality of their playing, or you might look for the technical mastery of their, of, of their skills. You, you might look for their stage presence as they perform the songs that they've, that they've written. If you're looking for a doctor, you might look at their you know, textbook knowledge of of the human body and how it works. You might look at their skill in an operating room. I don't know how you'd evaluate a doctor. Thankfully, someone else is doing that. You might, you, how, do you, how do you evaluate the skills of a chef? You're going to look at taste and temperature and texture. You're going to look at the product that they produce. What you're not going to do is try to evaluate a brain surgeon based on how well he hits a fastball. They're playing different games. Different rules apply. Different competencies are needed. Now, that's what Paul's saying here. This is a new covenant. New game. New rules. New competencies. So, you're looking for fancy rhetoric? Might be nice to listen to. Okay, if what you're trying to do is move people's emotions. You're looking for compelling logical arguments? Okay, if what you're trying to do is just change people's minds. Maybe entertain them. But these skills, these competencies that you're looking for, they're as useless for changing hearts as a scalpel is for hitting a fastball. You've got to judge competency based on what it is you're looking to somebody to do. What the game involves, or the profession, or whatever. And they've got it all wrong. They're looking in the wrong place. Paul's saying in the New Covenant era, where God transforms people's lives from the inside out. If you want to know I'm legit, don't look 
at my words? Don't look at how high the honorariums are that I'm commanding. Don't look at my stage presence or my technical skill. Look at the hearts of the people I minister to. You can tell if I'm legit when people get transformed. And when they're transformed, not by my cleverness, not by my obvious wisdom or my intelligence or my rhetorical power, you can tell when people get transformed apart from anything that has to do with me, anything unique to Paul. That's how you'll know. And that's how he wants it. He wants to make it clear he's not sufficient to produce any of the change that he wants to see in people because he wants letters written on hearts, not on tablets. I hope that's clear. And you're pressing a little bit further with the next step. So that's the proof of true Christianity. If you want to know I'm legit, Paul's saying, look at the fruit of my ministry. Do people's hearts get changed? Does that show up because their lives are transformed? Not because someone was threatening them with a whip but because they wanted different things from what they used to want. The reason, the reason that this is the, me, the measure for a, a fruitful ministry, the reason Paul's saying, look here, not over there, is that there's a power to true, true Christianity. Where Paul goes in verses 7 to 11 is just celebrating the power he mentions in the first few verses that we've already looked at. He talked about the Spirit. He's doing this new covenant ministry where the Spirit changes people. Then in verses 7 to 11, he just expands on that. And he starts riffing on the Spirit and how powerful and beautiful it is and on how wonderful it is to live in a time when the Spirit's doing its work in people. Rather than just a law that calls them to things, God is actually putting inside of them a power that changes them. The new era he lives in is what he talks about here, and it's defined by a new power. True Christianity has a certain proof to it Because true Christianity always comes with a certain power. That's what he wants to say here. That's what these next verses are about. It's a classic compare and contrast essay. He makes his point that that everything in true Christianity depends on the Spirit to give life as a gift. Not on the power of a preacher or an apostle. Not on the power of some sort of rigidly self-controlled disciples. But the Spirit's power. And that's what makes this ministry, this new era, more glorious than anything you've ever seen. I want to just quickly point out to you, uh, in verses 7 to 11, I want to quickly point out to you, there's three different contrasts that Paul draws here to make this point. That, that, that the thing I want, the thing I'm aiming for in my ministry, and the thing I want you paying attention to and evaluating, is transformation that comes from a specific kind of power. And he makes that point through three different contrasts, contrasting the old way, the old covenant, or the old law, with the new way, the new covenant, the power of the Spirit. Look at these contrasts. In verse 7, the contrast is between the ministry of death and the ministry of the Spirit. If the ministry of death, he says, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory the Israelites couldn't gaze at Moses' face, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? Here's one contrast. Ministry of death versus ministry of the Spirit. Next contrast, ministry of condemnation Versus ministry of righteousness. This is verse 9. If there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. And then in verse 11, he gives us the last contrast. The difference between the ministry of what is coming to an end and that which will be permanent. Verse 11 says, If what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Everything's got glory. 
Not all have the same glory, not the same level, not the same brilliance, not the same obvious power. These are harsh words, aren't they? Death. Condemnation. Coming to an end. You could almost get the sense that, that Paul had a very low view of the Old Testament. Of its laws and its, its covenant. But, but that's not true. I want, I want to make sure this is clear, friends. Paul's not here dogging on the old way. He's actually talking about the glory that this old way had. Such a glory that when Moses just came down from the side of a mountain, this is from Exodus 32 to 34, Moses comes down from the mountain where he's gotten the law from God. And his face is bright. So bright that the people who are down there waiting for him can't even look at him. And what he's saying, this, this old way had seriously supernatural glory to it. It's not that it wasn't glorious, even good. It's just that compared to what God is doing now, this old way may as well have not had any glory. Compared to what he's doing now, it had nothing. Think of it as the difference between a 60-watt light bulb and the sun. Let me unpack this a little bit. I think this is going to help you to see these details in the compare and contrast. Think of the difference between the old and the, and the new as a difference between a 60-watt light bulb on the one hand and, and the sun on the other hand. So, a light bulb was an incredible invention. Let's give Edison his due, right? That guy was a genius. It's powerful. It's useful. Even in a way, the light bulb is glorious. It was a true breakthrough. And it's an incredible advantage over unlit darkness. Nobody complains about a light bulb when they need one. And they have one. It's great. But I think no one would, all, no one would deny that its usefulness is also pretty limited. It doesn't go very far. It might light up your immediate surroundings, but it's not going to light up your whole yard or the street in front of you. It only reaches so far. And where it does reach, the power of a light bulb can only show you where to go and what to avoid and what's there, right? It can show you go that way or don't go that way. Don't step on that. It can show you what's there. But a light bulb doesn't actually have the power to change anything, does it? It doesn't have the power to change what is. To change what's true. All it does is show what's true. But the sun? That's another story, isn't it? The sun's reach covers the world. It stretches over everything with an immeasurable power. And part of its power is not just to reveal what is, but to change what is. The power to change your skin from comfortable to agonizingly painful. The power to change a seed that looks dead into a plant that's beautiful and living. The sun has a generative power that a light bulb doesn't. And when you flip on a light bulb in a dark room, then carry that same light bulb out into the light of the sun. What once seemed bright and even brilliant may as well not even be on because it's completely swallowed up. So the law, the old way, the Old Testament, the old covenant, 
was like a light bulb. It was truth shining in the darkness. It spread knowledge where there was once ignorance. It told right things about who God is and what he wants and and what pleases him and what we were made to be and to do. Having the law versus not having the law is an immense advantage. Told us where to walk and where not to. But the law had only the power to show what is. The law had no power to change what is. Like a light bulb, it just showed what was there. And in that sense, it was the ministry of death and the ministry of condemnation. Because what it showed by its light was people who were not what they should be. What it showed was that we, st- we walk the path of death every day. That we willingly choose it over the alternative. The law had no power to forgive us, to transform us. It had the power to show us what is good and right and beautiful, but didn't have the power to make us want anything other than what is wrong and ugly. But under the Spirit, in this new covenant, we have the light of the sun. The power to give life, to cause growth. That's why he's juxtaposing death and spirit. Spirit gives life. When you hear spirit, think life, newness, something given to you, produced in you that you didn't have to produce for yourself. Where there was death, there is now life by the Spirit. Where there was condemnation, now by the power of the Spirit, there's actual righteousness. Not just Jesus' righteousness, that's part of it. We get Jesus' track record, but the gospel is also that by the Spirit's power, God changes us so that our lives actually are more pleasing to Him, actually are righteous. The ministry of condemnation has been replaced by a ministry that causes righteousness to spring up in His people by His power. And there, was the, there the ministry that was coming to an end, glorious though it was, could never make us ready for eternity. But under the Spirit's power, we are being changed into something that will stretch on pleasing to God forever. So like a light bulb brought out into the light of the sun, this old way has been completely swallowed up. Verse 10 says, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. The proof of true Christianity is in transformed hearts because Christianity, true Christianity, is built on this new covenant where we're not just after changed minds or moved emotions. We're after transformed lives. True Christianity shows up where this power is on display in lives that should not be possible. Lives that just don't make sense. That's the ministry Paul cares about. It is radical, miraculous, new covenant transformation. And now maybe you can see why Paul's saying, don't look over there, look over there. You're looking to me for rhetorical skill? You're looking for good stage presence? You want some guy that can command a high honorarium? What good are these things? For swapping out a ministry of death with a ministry of life. For not just imposing new laws that condemn me for what I'm not, but actually giving me new desires to want what I should want. The things you're looking for can't produce the things that matter to me. That's what Paul's saying. 
They're judging him like a baseball player when he's doing brain surgery. Even better, when he is but the scalpel in the hand of the one who does these surgeries perfectly. That's the proof of true Christianity you should be looking for. That's the power of Christianity on which this proof rests. Now, I want to finish up this morning with a couple of quick challenges and encouragements to us. Because to drive this home, to drive this home would be to change what we are often looking for in our practice of religion and change how we often think about our our dealing in our lives with things we wish weren't true about us. I want to start with a challenge of true Christianity. If this is what it is, it's a challenge we've got to confront. If we want to be Christians, then we've got to accept that our lives are going to become exhibits of God's power, not our own. No one ever gets to be a Christian who's looking for more material to put on display, testifying to their own awesomeness in the museum that is their life. You can't have Jesus and have glory that's yours. And much like the Corinthians, you remember what we said about them, status-obsessed, ladder climbers, always looking at what's visible, always comparing what they have with what others have. Much like those Corinthians, we are tempted to exhibitionism on every side. And we have more tools to work with than they could have ever imagined. We've got the same temptation they had to use our lives as a display of our own awesomeness. We've just got better tools. It's easy to make of our religion what we make of our reading lists uh, or our shared Spotify playlists or our carefully curated social calendars on Snapchat or whatever else. It could be part of how we build our profile. We can turn our religion into how we build our profile as someone who's tasteful or even enviable. It can be a chance to exhibit my willpower. Look at me and the power I have to resist what you can't can be an exhibit of our selfless service. Look what I give. Look at the sacrifices I make. Why aren't more people getting it? Why don't more people choose to make the same sacrifices I do? can be an exhibit of our intellectual abilities, our knowledge, even of the Bible. One way or another, exhibits of our good tastes, of lives that you should want, that you should envy. But friends, to enjoy the power of true Christianity, I've got to repent of all that. I've got to repent of it. I have to lay it down. I have to turn away from it. I have to accept that there is nothing good in me that isn't from Him. There is nothing good in my life that isn't evidence of God's power and not mine. If you don't accept that, that's what repentance means. I am, I am doing away, I am dying to anything about me That's separate from Jesus. I can have Jesus and everything or I can have me by myself. I can't have Jesus where I want him and my own exhibits over here where I think I'm I'm doing pretty well. It's all Jesus or all nothing. So to, to, to claim him and his work for us on the cross and the promises of what he'll do in our lives is by repentance to say, I'm done making a name for myself. I'm done trying to justify my life. I'm done trying to meet your standard 
or make you wish you could meet mine. I've got Jesus. Jesus is everything. He will make a new man of me or I won't become one. And anything good in me is proof that he can do what he says he can do. To be a Christian is, is to lay down your life so that your life can become something that brings honor to Jesus, that proves his power as he transforms your heart. And I want to say, too, that this is not just something that we should think about as individuals, but also something we should think about as a, as a church, as a community of faith. So I'm saying you've got to lay down your right to make your life an exhibit of your own awesomeness if you want to be with Jesus. The same thing goes for local churches. Paul makes this point a lot more clear in his other letter to the Corinthians, the first couple chapters of his other letter. We, we as, a, as a community, here's, if, you're, if you're a part of Trinity, I, I want to speak just for a minute here to, to call you, to, to remind you to what your, your calling is as a member of our church. Here's what we're after in our church's life together. We want to bring God glory by the way we treat one another. Because God gets glory from us when our way of life together is only possible by his power among us. We want, to, we want a kind of life together, a sort of relationship that when people see it, won't be explainable for them, apart from God's power being true and active in us. In other words, we don't want to have any goals as a congregation that we have the power to fulfill. Not one. We don't want any goals that we can fulfill. Something we talked about a couple years ago, when we look closely at Paul's first letter to, the, to Corinth, he founded this church avoiding all the things they were looking for, the entertainment, the impressiveness, the crowd gathering. And it wasn't because he couldn't cut it. Here's what he said in, in chapters 1 and 2. Here's what, he t- here's what he tells his friends in Corinth about what he was trying to do when he established their church. He says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified to make him everything. My speech and my message, he says, they weren't implausible words of wisdom. You didn't leave commenting amongst yourselves about how insightful he was, how incredibly insightful. No, instead, it was in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Same words he's using now in 2 Corinthians. Why? Why did Paul want to build the church on the demonstration of the Spirit or not at all? knowing nothing but the message about Jesus and him crucified. He says, so that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. He doesn't want you building any sort of faith on him. He knows he'll let you down. He knows he can't give you what you really need. We want our church to be making that point because we don't, by, by not doing anything that could explain any goodness that people see in us apart from God's miraculous ability to change us. There's a book that uh, some of you have read. We, we talk about a good bit. It's uh, just about how to, how to focus your church's life together. What kind of culture. Think carefully about what kind of culture you want to build as a church. It uses this image early on in the book from the prophet Ezekiel. There's this image in the prophet Ezekiel in the Old Testament where, where God gives him a vision of the temple, this place on earth where you can see God's glory. God's presence among his people. He gives him this image of the glory of God as an almost physical, tangible thing rising up out of the temple and moving on, away, leaving them to themselves. And the temple, what they were about, 
pretty much just kept functioning just as it always had. Pull the power of God out, nothing much changes. So what this book says, using tweaking that analogy a bit, what our calling is, friends, is to be building a kind of culture in our church where it won't work if God's not with us. You pull God's power, His presence out from us and the whole thing falls apart. We want to avoid any strategy to attract people or build our community that would work whether God's here or not. That means we're not going to measure our success by the number of people attending our events or the scale of our programs or the quality of our buildings or the entertainment value of our services or the tastefulness of our swag, however tasteful it might be. We're going to measure our success by the clarity of God's power at work in us. And that shows up by the way we love one another. We want relationships that just make people kind of scratch their heads when they work at all because they shouldn't. That's the challenge of true Christianity. That's what you'd be signing up for if you want to be with Jesus. You can't be the hero of your own transformation story and be with him. But what I want to leave you with is this. You can't be the hero of your own transformation story, if you want to be with Jesus. But you do get to enjoy it. You do get to rest in it. You do get to be carried on by it. Because, friends, you don't have to bear the burden of it. The promise of this covenant that we've just spent a few minutes talking about, like the essence of this promise, is that the change you need is a change he gives you. The change you need is a change he gives as a present by his own power, paid for by his own blood, that won't stand or fall on you. God's promise in the new covenant is not to sweeten the incentive to try to convince his people to be obedient. He didn't look at that old covenant and say, you know, the problem there was, I just didn't offer them good enough land or a stable enough country. What I'm going to do is I'm going to offer them something better and that will entice them to obey me. He didn't do that because he knew that wouldn't work. He didn't offer them an opportunity to change. A kind of fresh start. Okay, I'll forgive you for everything you did wrong up until this point. Now go. Start without the baggage you were carrying from your past. That would have been kind. It also wouldn't have worked. He didn't offer them new and better rewards. He offered them a promise that he will change them and us. And all of us need to hear this, friends. We need to hear this because every single one of us lives with destructive patterns in our lives that seem unshakable. Some of those patterns are worse than others in the sense that they're more visible or they they have more domino effects throughout our lives, but every single one of us deals with destructive patterns that seem unshakable. And for many of us, there is nothing in our past experience to give us any hope that something new will work. We've tried it all. And there's no reason to keep going. I don't know what pattern that is for you, but perhaps you can't imagine your life without this struggle. And you're telling yourself that you can't change. If you are, and if you don't get any other 
practical nugget from all this talk of a new covenant. Get this one. The claim that you can't change is a lie. God hasn't promised you that change will come quickly. He hasn't promised you that it will feel easy to you. But He has promised you by His covenant, paid for by Jesus' blood, He has promised you that if you commit your life to Him, change will come inevitably. There's a book I really like about how God changes us. It uses this powerful image that's stuck in my head of a house that's in desperate need of renovation. I've used this before. Forgive me for those of you who remember it, but I'm going to go there again. It talks about the changes that we need as the kind of cha- complete inside-out renovation that many old homes need and that they're getting all across Nashville's urban neighborhoods right now. It, it, if, you were to, if you were in the market for a new home and you go into one of these old homes that's just completely run down, decayed, neglected, one of the common responses to it would just, my response to it would be, I, I can't do this. I don't have any handyman skills. I don't know anything about good electrical work. I have no idea how to evaluate the integrity of this piping system. I don't do floors. I don't do drywall. I barely do paint. I would see it, have seen it, in looking for homes, seen homes like that, and moved on. Because I know that change is too much for me. Oftentimes we think about our own, our own lives like that, like houses that are so far gone that we can't start. We don't even know where to take the next step. The promise of the new covenant is that God comes in to the shambles of our lives like an experienced home builder. He sees where he's going from the time he sets his eyes on it. Where people like me just see broken floorboards, leaky pipes, faulty and dangerous electrical work, he sees a finished product. He sees beautiful, shining, gleaming wood floors. He sees the best cutting-edge plumbing that you can imagine. Even one of those little, those little spigots that you can touch and they come on. He sees windows outfitted with more energy efficiency and lots of natural light. He sees the final product. He knows every step it'll take to get from here to there. He sees us beginning to end. And the covenant that he's made, this covenant of the Spirit, the covenant of righteousness, not condemnation, the covenant that's permanent, not coming to an end, is an invitation to you to hope. to see your life in the light of the end that he will bring about. An invitation to rise above the fixation you may live with on your present circumstances and to see what he has promised he will do. No one of you, friends, is beyond the transformation that this covenant offers you.
because it depends on a power that isn't yours and a promise that you can't break because you aren't the one that made it. A unilateral promise by God to you that's there for the taking. So take it.